and you are on Community Radio 2XX 98.3. You're with Scotty, you're with Rebecca, and you're with Walter Yena. And yeah, Walter, so um, you're a soil scientist, you're a forester, you're a climate activist, you've got pretty much the full bottle on all sorts of things. Um, So let's start right at the beginning, because... A lot of what we're dealing with today started billions of years ago. Yeah, yeah. What was life? Well, what was the planet like, sort of before life emerged? Yeah. Well, look, let, let's do that right at the beginning because basically, look, we've got a sun, we've got CO two, we've got water up in the sky, right? Nitrogen as well, and of course, basically for the last three point five billion years on this planet, we've had life and photosynthesis. That's an actual taking sunshine, CO2, water, making sugars, and all or most of the life on land depends on those sugars because that's our food, okay? And it all depends on plants. We just heard the little song, and it's all about plant, green plants growing. And, of course, the thing about green plants growing is they need two other things, fundamentally. They need water, especially in countries like Australia. We know that so well. And they need essential nutrients from the minerals in the soil, actually from the stardust when the you know planets first uh, formed. Okay, and so those mineral nutrients and that water has to come from the soil, and so really the soil is the foundation and the crucible for, in a sense, life on land. For the first you know three and a half billion years of life, it was from these mineral nutrients leaching into the oceans, allowing ocean life to grow but for the last 420 million years on land it was basically plants colonizing the land and then creating the whole terrestrial biosystem that we live but that process was driven by what we call pedogenesis the evolution of soils and it was driven by the microorganisms particularly the fungi that made that pedogenesis possible yeah, right. Well, I guess uh, that leads into your sort of question. Well, Walter, you're talking about something called the global carbon-rich sponge. What is the sponge? Did we have one and what happened to it? Okay, so that's exactly the position. Obviously, for plants to be able to get water and nutrients and for therefore to grow and to allow the whole biosystem to evolve these water and nutrients had to be available. Okay, in rocks they're all locked up and unavailable. But it's basically only the fungi that colonise that rock from the oceans that solubilise those nutrients and then put them in their detritus, the organic matter that was left, and that created the first sponge or created the organic detritus, the sponge that held water that held nutrients in available form and actually drove the evolution of life. So squashy, thick, peaty soil full of water and nutrients is a carbon-rich sponge, am I right? Absolutely. And so the earth's soil carbon sponge, is if you bring it all down now, is the actual, yeah, it's the credit card reserve where plants can actually draw water, draw nutrients from, to sustain life and the whole evolution of life on this planet 
on the land was based on these fungi and these plants building that sponge very rapidly in fact and then extending life all across the land surface in the Carboniferous and the Permian 400 to 300 million years ago. Now, I know we're going to hear a lot of fascinating science and detail about this, but let's go straight to the crux of this solution to our climate crisis. How can the carbon sponge, how can nice thick soils help us in the climate crisis we're in at the moment? Right. Thank you very much. And, And it is, yeah, complicated, but it's also very simple. It's basically, it's the capacity of these plants to draw down CO2 from the air through photosynthesis. But then the critical thing is what happens to every molecule of CO2 fixed? Does it oxidize back into CO2, which doesn't get us anywhere? That's like, that's like um, a piece of bark that just sort of evaporates. Or, or burning, or that's if we burn it and what have burn you. Burn it, yeah. So we're just, well... Yeah, oxidizing it, burning it back into CO2, so nothing's changed. Or alternatively, nature, microorganisms, puts that carbon into humus and glomelins, or these very stable carbon fractions, and they form the sponge. And so it's a simple matter. Do we just burn things off, or do we put it into soil sinks? So, so that's why the sort of level of the land rises over the centuries and eons Abs- as more and more compost gets, gets onto the planet's st- surface. Stunning. And if you look at any archaeologist, what do they do? They dig down. And then they find the actual land surfaces and the buildings that we used to uh, have. And it's prodigious. Like in England, Western England, you've got old... Um, Bronze Age walls and, uh, you know, walls, stone walls around field, five metres below a peaty organic sponge. So, yes, soils can build up prodigious quantities of carbon, I mean, depth, and all of that is storing carbon. So, so in Australia, have we lost our sponge? Absolutely. When we Europeans first came to Australia... The initial explorers, Oxley, Mitchell, and then Streslecki particularly, who actually collected samples, they all described our soils as soft, spongy molds that basically the horses used to sink in up to their fetlocks in every step. It was covered with tall, perennial grasslands two metres high. They had to stand up in their stirrups to work out where the hell they, where they were going. And basically the soil samples that Streslecki took and basically had analysed in Kew in 1842, some of the first soil analyses in the world, came back with 20% organic matter in these soils, 10% carbon. So yes, the whole land surface was covered by a thick sponge and that sponge held the water. 6% of the water that fell on Australia drained out into the oceans through river systems. 94% was retained in the landscape, in inland deltas, in inland wetlands, and that sustained the very high productivity of Australia, even though we are the driest inhabited continent on the planet. So what's the role of the, the living organism in the soil? The living organisms of the soil are fundamental on every front. I mean, they created these soils. 
but they're also fundamental in one, providing nutrients to the plants. 95% of the whole nutrition of plants in nature and certainly in sustainable agriculture depends on these organisms fixing, nit fixing nutrients, solubilizing nutrients, taking up nutrients, cycling nutrients. So fundamental in that carbon fixation but they're also fundamental in then turning the fixed carbon, the plant debris, into this humus and glomalin, these stable soil carbon content compounds that can last for 100 to 1,000 years in soil. Just, just what is fixed carbon? Okay, fixed carbon is, in a sense, CO2 from the air, a gas that plants fix into sugars and cellulose and wood and organic matter. Okay, so that's the process of photosynthesis, fixing carbon from a gas into actually a substrate, you know, wood, cellulose, sugars that we can eat and that underpins our whole habitat and life system. Yeah, right. So how is that similar to the biochar that people are talking about? Okay, biochar is, is just a component of cellulose and lignin that's been partially um, burnt, oxidised, but the residual carbon, the actual charcoal, is then retained and put into soil. So people are saying, yeah, we can basically grow biomass, we can actually extract energy from that biomass under controlled conditions, but instead of emitting a lot of carbon dioxide, we can leave a lot of carbon behind as charcoal, which we can bury in soil and enhance the soil. But, Walter, what's biomass? <laughs> well, okay. Well, look, these, biomass is just organic matter, right? It is just the, the mass of organic matter created by plants. But, of course, then it's also all the animals that live off that plant. So it's all the worms and the insects and the humans that are actually living off that. So it is the whole living weight of matter on this planet. Yeah, right. So back to um, back to the biochar. Is, is that sort of mimicking the job that the life is doing in the soil? Uh, no. Fixing the carbon? Or? Yeah, look, biochar is part of that carbon uh, fixing process or carbon, locking up carbon for soil. But it's, it's a component of that system. But basically, it's not living. It's just like a charcoal, right? It's just really, okay, instead of putting that carbon back to CO2, we've put it back to charcoal and then stored that in soil. Yeah, right, right. But your story isn't so much about biochar, is it, Walter? No, no. no. Look, the whole challenge, okay, the very simple message, we have to regenerate the Earth's soil carbon sponge, right? Because basically carbon is really the building blocks for this sponge. We build that sponge, we have water, and we have nutrient availabilities, and therefore we've got more plant growth and more biological futures. And that's the whole challenge. How do we on Earth, in every local area, every square metre, every hectare, rebuild that carbon, take carbon from the air and draw it down through plants and fix it in those soils? So, so um, you know, the scientists say that the carbon bomb has come, gone off that yes. we're going to have climate impacts, yes. whatever happens, because there's all this CO2 right. 
coming out or reach going up into the air or something yeah. and, and we have to just face the impacts. Is that right? If we could use your ideas to pull CO2 out of the air into the into the sponge, maybe we could be saved. Uh, well, absolutely. That's what we're here for, saving. But look, let, let me just go through this. Look, every year we are emitting 10 billion tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere as CO2 above what nature is in a sense fixing, right? So we are adding 10 billion tonnes. And that has caused the CO2 levels to go up to above 400 parts per million now. Now, that is going to continue. And, of course, that CO2 rise is giving us a greenhouse effect. So we've got a challenge not just to slow down our emissions, which we must do, but we've also got this much, much bigger imperative now to draw down carbon, take carbon from the air and put it away in stable sinks. So we reduce carbon back to 350 parts per million or below. And the only way we can do that is as nature does it through plants, through this biosequestration or this drawing down of carbon into the sponge, into the humus, the glomerin. Now, basically, it's very simple and beautiful. Innovative farmers all over the world are drawing down 10 tonnes of carbon per hectare per annum because of their land management practices. If we extended that over a lot of the degraded land systems and farming systems globally, we could readily draw down 20 billion tonnes of carbon per annum. That's twice what we are currently emitting Wow. So we are in the business of negative emissions. And those negative emissions have then or is the only mechanism we've got for restabilizing the carbon balance that we've disturbed over the last, well, particularly 300 years, 300 years, but also the last 10,000 years through agriculture. So, so, so negative emissions is when you suck down more than you pump out Absolutely. CO2. Absolutely. Yeah. We we've got to go into negative emissions, drawing down carbon from the air and putting it into stable, safe, natural sink and that sink is our soils. That sink is the sponge. And that sponge has massive positive benefits, dividends in improving water availability, nutrient cycling. And in a sense, that's what's now hitting the world seriously. The UN, the World Bank, they've put a crisis situation out. It's water, it's food security, it's social stability. The Syria's, you know, this, the... Uh, the calamity in Syria is happening all over, hundreds of millions of people at risk. And really, it's all about water, food, social stability. It's all about rebuilding that soil carbon sponge to provide that water, that food locally where people are living and suffering rather than having climate refugees. So what we're really talking about here is, is a carbon cycle. It's... Um it's living things say, oh, I decide I'm going to drop off the perch tomorrow. I'm going to die and then rot. And I'll, I'll be giving off stuff that will eventually turn into carbon in the atmosphere. Is that correct? Or? Yeah, well, uh, yes. Uh, we're all part of that cycle. All life is a cycle. Uh, yeah, no, basically, yes. Some so of I'm, little... I'm getting it. How does yeah. carbon get into the atmosphere? Okay, the carbon gets into the atmosphere from that decomposition and burning, yes. But also, if you depends where you were buried, uh, 
well, if you burnt yourself or you were cremated, yeah, it would all go into the atmosphere. But otherwise, a lot of that carbon can be locked up in humus and glomalin and long-lived carbon substances in soil. So that, no, if you get buried, a lot of carbon can stay in the soil. But basically, the whole drive of that carbon into the soil are plants, as we've talked about, plants, and then the fungi that turn that plant matter into these stable humus sponge materials. So, Walter, I'm an Aussie farmer. Yep. Cattle, maybe, yep. or running yep. big, big station somewhere. Yep. What can I do? Well, very, very elegantly, right? Basically, and this is what we work with. We, Healthy Soils Australia, we work with innovative farmers all over Australia. And so depending where you are, what soils, what environments, there's a whole lot of very clever strategies. But so if you're grazing, then the answer is right. There are grazing, ecological grazing strategies where we optimise, the allow the grass to grow optimally and graze in, in various um, seasonal pulses or where we have high-intensity grazing, long periods of rest, and that way we can maximise the capacity of those grasses to store and fix soil carbon. So if those grasses weren't eaten by a kangaroo you might be grazing or you might be grazing cattle, they'd burn, wouldn't they, every few years? Well, that's the whole point, you see, because, okay, a grass will grow for about six weeks and then it basically becomes mature, dormant, stagnant, moribund. And so you have to put it in through the gut of an animal because that will rejuvenate, allow that grass to regrow again. But you've got to give it enough rest to regrow and then you've got to graze it. So the optimum um, pulsing of that grazing pressure and rest allows you to effectively use that grass to pump enormous quantities of carbon into the soil. So if you're thinking every six weeks I'm grazing and I'm putting that carbon, instead of it going off burning, I'm putting it back in dung, and I'm putting it back as soil carbon. So this is how I can, in through grazing, yeah, do up to 10 tonnes of carbon packed per annum. But if I don't graze it, and this is in a sense where we've had this circumstance now globally, if I don't graze it, it inevitably just dries out, becomes fuel for wildfires. And we're getting this a massive explosion of dangerous wildfires we've seen them in canada and alaska and uh, siberia australia and those wildfires of course are just turning all that biomass into co2 there's about 300 million hectares of this planet that burns with wildfires every year emitting 10 to 20 tons of carbon per hectare so that's bigger or as big as our fossil fuel carbon emissions wildfires and the only way we can manage them is through again these ecological grazing we've got to eat it rather than burn it and in a sense this is becoming more and more extreme as climates heat up and aridify and so again unless humidity comes to address you know like let's put these fuels down through guts and fungi let's biodegrade these fuels rather than burn them back to co2 so we've got Walter Yane, the soil scientist, talking about how we can really save the planet from global warming. He has a solution locked in his mind. We're going to draw it out of him. Walter, if we can pull down CO2 into our soils, what's the world doing about this? 
Right, Rebecca, look, uh, exciting and very positive because in Paris in December last year, we had COP21. And after 30 years of talk at the United Nations, 50 years of scientific evidence, I think we've now faced that reality that we've got to actually practically do things on the ground, at the grassroots, at the community levels. And so the whole initiative was, okay, how do we empower the 196 nations to actually do that carbon uh, drawdown agenda? They put out a target of zero net carbon emissions for mid-century, but as we've sort of talked about, actually we can go to negative carbon emissions through these drawdown strategies. Basically, the whole message now is, yeah, how do, does each nation in their own strategic self-interest get into, yeah, reducing emissions but also drawing down carbon? The French, again, leading in this came with an initiative of 0.4% carbon drawdown every year. You know, can we improve ourselves four out of a thousand, you know, carbon drawdown? And the French agricultural minister has been now championing this all over the world. And that's very much picking up the same narrative that we've been going with. So we're basically now working with farmer communities, nations all over the world. How do we practically implement these land regeneration, these sponge rebuilding strategies? Uh, we didn't talk about it earlier, but uh, actually there's a more serious um, problem but also a solution because we've been emitting carbon for so long and carbon has a very, very long residence time in the atmosphere, hundreds of years. So in a sense, we are now locked in to carbon levels being you know, much, much higher than they are even now. Way too high. Way too high, but going up, up, up for perhaps one or two centuries further further whoops and the greenhouse consequence of that are disastrous so we're in a sense locked into four to six degrees warming and that's actually a collapse of biosystem i mean we can't survive that sort of level and so we now have this fundamental challenge of hey how do we also cool the planet you know how do we safely naturally cool the planet and again this is where the sponge is fundamental because basically 95% of the planet's heat dynamics and balance is governed not by carbon dioxide, but is governed by water, by hydrological processes. Mm -hmm. And that sponge is fundamental in making those hydrological processes, uh, restoring them and making them active, enabling us to cool the planet. That's like the water cycle that you learn so, at high school. Precisely. Yeah. So you using the water cycle. Now, very simply, look, every gram of water, every cubic centimetre of water that gets transpired from a green surface because of plants and sponge takes up about 590 calories of heat from the surface back up into the upper atmosphere, back into clouds, and thereby cools that surface. So saying when a drop of water becomes a gas, it cools the ground. The, it, to, to form into a gas, it needs latent heat to turn it from liquid into gas. That's about 550 calories 
of energy and that energy then is taken from the surface and cools that surface that amount. That's like sweating. It's like sweating. So exactly that. So we've got the sponge is fundamental in making the water available to allow green systems, the longevity of green across the surface, because that green in its transpiring is sweating, is cooling the planet. And really, the sponge green extension of green growth is fundamental now to keeping livable, viable biosystem, life support systems for us, and keeping that temperature cooler. So I love I love the practical to hear some practical examples well, of how would a French farmer make the planet sweat? Okay, well let's let's go better than a French farmer. Let's go to that person living in Deakin in Canberra, Australia, and the ANU Centre for Environment Population Health done have done the studies, and basically in a thirty five degree day, Deakin is seven degrees cooler than an equivalent suburb without trees, without green vegetation, you know, new suburb with massive amounts of concrete and road, the heat island effect. Seven degrees centigrade cooler. And that has profound benefits in terms of human health, stress, air conditioning, energy loads, you know, the whole consequences of, in a sense, our urban footprint on this planet. And so simply re-greening urban areas, yeah, is there to cool the planet. And so, again, a local group here in Canberra, Climate Action Canberra, has been leading with this project called Cool Canberra. How do we actually create the actual porosity, the water retention in this landscape to have the water to sustain green growth, to provide that urban shelter wood to keep Canberra sort of more habitable and safer and buffered despite the climate changes, yeah. which we can't now stop through CO2. So urban shelter, well, it's lovely in the inner suburbs and you can really feel how cool it is on a hot day, but places like Gungahlin, when you look at them from, a, from the Google map, there's no space between the houses to even plant trees. Spot on, and that's why we have to get wise. And, of course, we just go back to Marion Mahoney, Walter Burley Griffin, Charles Weston, 100 years ago, 1913, the first thing they did is they looked at this clapped out, degraded, hot, arid, clapped out sheep paddock, and they said, we need a shelter wood. We need forest. We need urban forest. And so the whole effort, Westburn Woods, Hague Park, Tilopia Park, street planting was putting trees there to create the habitat and basically that's been extremely successful. Canberra has now a microclimate completely different from what it was before and completely different from even the adjacent rural exposed areas and certainly totally different from concrete jungles you know that we're now plant, uh, building but again the message is we can regreen even those suburbs but we've got to get into cool Canberra. And yeah yeah um Shelter woods can bring rain. What's all that about and how does it relate to Canberra? Uh, okay, well, again, if you go back to your water cycle that you did at school, you know, like, okay, once this water is transpired, it basically forms clouds in the sky. Those clouds are terribly important in cooling, again, the surface because they reflect 
over 30% of the incident solar radiation back out to space, acting as a, a shade, effectively. Umbrella. Umbrella, right. But also, of course, those clouds, once they get nucleated, precipitate that water back to refill the sponge. Wait a minute, Walter. You're racing ahead. Nucleated clouds? Oh, that doesn't sound good. Well, 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 hang on. You're in a different world here. <laughs> okay, well, look, uh, let's go back. In 1960s, um, 50s, 60s, we had CSRO, Division of Atmospheric Physics, and we had a lot of work on cloud seeding, right? And we were world mm-hmm. leaders in this. Mm-hmm. And basically the whole solution was, yeah, there's water vapour up there in cloud micro droplets but for rain to form you have to basically i suppose coalesce and suck in about a million of these micro droplets to make a raindrop big and heavy enough to fall out as rain and so the process of doing that you need a precipitation nucleus so we're not talking radiation nuclear. You need a seed. Let's you call need, it a little seed. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, a seed. or uh, but, but these are hygroscopic. You know, they're little suckers, right? They suck up Hydroscopic? Hygroscopic. What's that? Well, that's, that's when things absorb water okay. from the environment, right? Okay, and there's three key things. Basically, we've got ice crystals that can nucleate this rain, We've got basically salts, and of course, Syro, we're using silver iodide to do that. Okay. And there's also naturally, nature doesn't have salts. It basically uses bacteria, hygroscopic bacteria, what? to help nucleate this rain. You're saying there's bacteria in the clouds? Well, absolutely. The whole. Only whole after you've coughed a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, the whole, <laughs> the whole atmosphere is just a zoo, right? What? Yes, of course it is. But the point is that uh, we don't want to go into the sort of microbiology and the physics of it, but basically, yes, the formation of these clouds, the formation of this rain is a key part for cooling the planet, recharging that sponge and keeping that transpiration, cooling, hydrological cycle operating. So you, you told me that in the, the little holes in the leaf, there is actually little organisms living that okay. get floated up into yeah. the atmosphere to form Look, rain. Is that uh, right? It's, yes, but we're coming into a much more scientific, detailed sort of area now. But very simply, yes, forests produce microbial, bacterial uh, nuclei that they transpire as part of their transpiration. And these are, in a sense, fundamental in nucleating these raindrops and creating rain. And so, in a sense, it raises that wonderful thing that, look, rain is actually a symbiotic response. You know, it's part of a, a, a natural balance system. The forests drive their own rain because their production of these nuclei. So, essentially, what you should be aiming to do in, in your land usage is to increase the amount of leaf area, really. Absolutely, absolutely, Scott. Look, the whole message is the sponge is the point that we can influence this planet, but in doing that, we are retaining more water, we're making more nutrients available, so we can extend, yes, the area, but particularly the longevity of green growth on this planet. So on that note, what's the difference, because there is a lot of difference, between an annual like wheat and most of the stuff we grow grows 
yep. for one year. Yep. Then you've got to do it again. Yep. So what's the difference between that and a perennial? Well, okay, absolutely. An annual, like our cropping systems, we have a wheat crop that grows for actively for about 12 weeks. And then it goes yellow and it goes to seed. And then we harvest it and we often sit there with fallow, bare land for, yeah, 40 weeks or 30 weeks of the year. And, of course, it does nothing. Compared to what nature had were perennial pastures with good sponges and they would be staying green and productive and growing, yeah, for 45, 50 weeks of the year. Okay? And, and especially then you brought grazing animals in, they would be actually then regenerated, rejuvenated every time you had one of these pulse grazing effects. So, yeah, what we're doing now, we're working with about 20% of the carbon drawdown capacity of these natural systems. So this is exactly what Rebecca asked. How do we enhance this carbon? Yes, ecological management, we can actually do four or five times the carbon drawdown that our conventional systems are doing. And that's exactly what our innovative farmers are refining and achieving and getting dividends from. Yeah, right. So is this the sort of thing that, uh, I mean, this sounds like the sort of stuff you might hear on Landcare Radio, which is oh. on 2XX on Tuesday mornings at nine o'clock. Well, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so is Landcare, and are, are there are there movements in the in the farming community to to implement this sort of this, this totally, mindset? Totally, totally, totally. Look, uh, we, Healthy Souls Australia, we're working with about a thousand very leading innovative farmers all over Australia. They often form regional groups. And yeah, they're tailor-making relevant strategies for their regions and their crops and what have you. So yeah, we've got people up in the Barclay Tablelands and they're now putting these, yeah, shelter wood, soil, uh, grazing regeneration strategies into place. And yeah, they're able to sustain much, much higher productivities even with uh, stress conditions. We've got other people, for example, in New England, where basically, yeah, they're carrying 23,000 stock units now, where previously they were only carrying 7,000. So they've effectively tripled their stocking. They did that all through the 2002-2009 drought, maintaining green, healthy pastures, waters in their dams because of these land management. So look, Yes, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, we've got uh, Michael Jeffrey, for example, our ex-Governor General, and he's now operating as the National Soils Advocate, trying to champion and raise awareness and adoption of these sorts of practices. Yeah, right. And I guess it can even work on, on quite a small scale. There's a few permaculture people around the place who've set up really intensive systems, which really do involve a lot of stacking and there's just amazing soil and leaf area there and uh, during the drought there was no water flowing into their block but there was always water flowing out uh, absolutely scott and in a sense this comes back to cool canberra and yeah this is urban agriculture and this is basic saying look here we're living in an area and every backyard every nature strip every you know sort of park how do we increase its sponge its porosity its permeability infiltration retention of rain longevity of green and then the whole bioproductivity but the whole cooling 
hydrological cooling cycle we talked about previously. Mm, and do you reckon on, in the urban areas it might be a good idea to, to actually plant productive crops and, and harvest them as well? Oh, absolutely. And there we've got this question. I mean, initially, again, coming back to Charles Weston, Lindsay Pryor here in Canberra, yes, they were thinking of all these things. We've really gone off that a little bit because people get worried about, hang on, if somebody's going to eat a unripe um, apricot, will they get tummy ache and will they you know, take the government to well, court they on... They won't eat another ache. unripe one, will they, <laughs> no, if they get but, a tummy ache? But OK, but so the public liability has come into that. But no, look, certainly you know, nuts and things like that, they're there. But also, don't forget, we've really now got exactly that happening because the whole of Canberra's bird floras, the sulphur-crested cockatoos and galahs, they're in there having a massive feast, <laughs> making a mess of every footpath, but basically they've learned how to harvest this urban forest for its seed and its nutritional value, yes. So so you reckon, can, can we actually make a living out of this regeneration? I mean, is it a feasible farming technique? Oh, look, absolutely. No, no, more than, yes, farming. Well, as I'm saying, yes, farming, no question. As I said, if you're now sustaining 23,000 stock units where you previously had seven, you're using 20% of the inputs, you know, the chemical fertilizers and biocides and toxic materials. And most importantly, you've got the resilience, right, that you've got basically capacity to sustain that despite droughts. Yes, you're, you're really ahead, significantly ahead. And that's in a sense what we're in a sense always documenting with our lead farmer groups. No, very much significantly ecologically, economically, but then also socially, because out of this comes regional employment opportunities, out of this comes regional eco-business innovation, new businesses forming. Uh, for example, very simple, look, uh, how do we actually get all our urban waste, all that urban nutrient, all that urban organic matter, now back into composts and biofertilizers and back onto the land? And so there's enormous opportunities, employment, social multipliers to do that all over Australia. And do you reckon the government's cut out to be able to solve this? Do you reckon it's feasible? I mean, I've been involved with various government schemes over the years or been able to observe them at least. And a large percentage of them don't really work. Some, some of them certainly do, but... Is it worth the gamble here to leave this to government? Scott, and that's exactly the message, and that was exactly the message from COP21 in Paris. No, it can't be left to government. It's all about empowering the community. It's all about empowering the grassroots, farmers, youth, young people doing this, you know, square metre, balcony, backyard, at every level, and it's really empowering that. Now, what happens then once they start doing it? Yeah, then the government wants to come on board because they want to regulate things, right? But definitely the catalyst is empowering the grassroots. Uh, COP21 was all about 196 nations, farmers doing that. COP22 will be in Marrakesh in Morocco this November, and it's all about grassroots community agriculture. How do we now do that globally, empower, catalyse grassroots regeneration? And in a sense, all governments know 
that there is no way we can cool the planet or secure a few safe future or climate unless we get down to that grassroots community action. So just briefly now, what happened in World War Two that affected the soil and, and how did that affect the soil? Well, we turned over a lot of it with sort of uh, explosives, didn't we? But more importantly, no, well, we knew that happened because we went into victory gardens, right? Basically, you know, food became a critical issue and straight away everybody sort of said, look, we have to produce food, victory gardens. And all over the world, people started growing gardens and the significant thing, and this is a bigger debate that you should have, basically the human health, the preventative health values of the society improved massively because now they were eating nutritious food with high nutritional integrity from these gardens rather than just depending on a lot of our processed food without that nutritional integrity. Yeah, and what about the advent of uh hydrocarbon-based chemical fertilisers. Well, How did that affect the soil sponge globally well, through agriculture? Okay, so this is important because prior to Second World War, basically we were still feeding the world. There were only 2.5 billion people and we were basically still feeding it organically from natural nutrient cycles. With the war, we, of course, developed mass industrial chemistry capacity. After the war, Much of that was focused then on fertiliser. How do we get this nitrate out of bombs into soils? And, of course, biocides, you know, all the insecticides, fungicides, weedicides, etc. And it's really only in the last 70 years that we've been saturating our soils with these fertilisers and biocides. They've had a massive negative effect in oxidising carbon out of our soils. So soils that were... Five eight percent carbon, and now down to less than one percent carbon. So, so of you're saying use. those chemicals sort of burn the soil somehow yes, and, they are, and they are, release CO two from the soil. They are acid and they are oxidizing, and yes, they massively in excess. They massively oxidize carbon from soils. And I guess they remove one of your essential components of that sponge, the life part. Once they remove the sponge, not just the life, then they make that soil aridify the soil because it can't hold the water. It doesn't have the nutrients, natural nutrients available, but also because you take the sponge out, the soil physically collapses, compacts, and so then you get flood runoff rather than infiltration, and yet your whole biosystem degrades significantly and in a sense that is the lesson of Syria. Syria, the fertile crescent, farmers have been there for 10,000 years sustainably and it's really the post-World War agriculture in the space of 50 years has turned that whole country into concrete and of course with that comes the social collapse we're seeing. Now a little bit of US imperialism had something to do with that too Walter. I mean, I just don't take it that um, droughts necessarily cause refugees. Well, there was a lot of chaos and instability caused by U.S. forces yeah, in, that, yeah. in that story. Of course, of course. But look, it's always chicken and the eggs, isn't it? I mean, it's a case of, yes, once you have stresses and pressures and instability, yes, you're obviously getting all sorts of then power structures and what have you. But it's really... Um, I suppose the buffering and the resilience of communities, healthy communities, 
and then they can be empowered to also make political independent decisions much more so than when they're beholding. Yeah, right. So say um, say there's a farmer out near, well, I say Paddy's River or something, yeah. who's, who's saying, geez, this is pretty interesting. I'd like to get involved with this sort of stuff. How do I find more information? Well, what they tend to do, yeah, okay, what they, and they, they're doing that. I mean, what, when we're working with a 1,000 farmers, no, there's well, I mean, there's 120,000 farmers left in Australia and over half of them have actually engaged in land care and these sorts of innovative questions. They're just waiting, often not sure of, okay, can I invest? Are the policies of governments uh, reliable enough long-term for us to invest you know, in this change? But what tends to happen is, yeah, they'll, they'll go to regional groups, you know, there'll be innovators in the area, they'll form either land care or otherwise, you know, uh, regional sort of group structures. And then in those group structures, they'll say, okay, what are the proven, commercially viable change practices, you know, that will work here? And then they sort of, in a sense, bring in or bring in people like us to help them, okay, how do we design, implement, mentor and performance manage those changes? Bottom line, ecological, economic and social dividends, big time. Yep. And say, say I live in suburbia, I eat a lot of food, but yep. that's sort of the only thing I really have to do with farming. How can I influence this change? Uh, okay. Well, look, Scott, that very important question, and we come back to cool Canberra. Uh, urban agriculture australia or and we've got active people here in canberra and yeah that's a case of yeah okay how do i grow gardens or participate in you know community gardens how do i cycle organic matter and sort of how do i actually contribute to that but just even articulating and voicing going to farmers markets to say look i am supporting other local growers you vote every time you spend a dollar rather than, you know, on June, July the 2nd. Of course, if you're a farmer, you could go to the Healthy Soils website that have, has resources and ways to plug into this amazing planet-changing movement. And in Can for Canberrans, this uh, Sea Change website yeah. lists all sorts of activities of ways of learning how to grow your own food, often through activities sponsored by the Canberra Environment Centre. That's right. There's enormous depth and breadth and diversity of then information and local groups. So it's like let the thousand flowers bloom. It's, it's very healthy, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Let's go. Should we have a song or we got oh, another I reckon, question? I reckon we should, yep. This yep. is um, Ode to Soil no by worries. E. Capella. Before we do that, I'd like to thank Walter Hiena uh, for uh, giving us such a wonderful rant. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Walter. Let's build the global soil, soil carbon sponge. sponge. Yes, let's do that.